Man, it is so good to be able to worship with you today online, on Facebook, on YouTube, however it is. It's just great. It's Easter, and it's just a fantastic time. I'm David. I'm the pastor. Uh, some of you watching are probably guests, and so we're just we're glad you're here with us. Celebrate Easter. We miss you. We miss all being together. I mean, last year at Easter, you know, we had our four services, and they were all packed, and we had people everywhere, and that's so cool. It can't happen, but we're with you. I think one of the hardest things about what's going on is just not being with people. Because we're created to be with people in Easter. Oh, man. Easter is not just coming to church and worshiping the Lord. It's, it's getting to be with family. I remember growing up, you know, uh, on Easter Sunday, after you go to church, go home and eat a big meal. If we were lucky, we'd go to my grandmother's house. Man, we go to Nanny's. Oh, she could cook. Man, she'd have ham. And, and my grandmother, she knew the secret to cooking. And it's not love. It, it, no, it's bacon grease. Bacon grease. It's the secret to cooking. And uh, man, I'm just make ham. And we'd have scalloped potatoes. And we'd have sweet potatoes. We'd have green beans with potatoes. We had lots of potatoes, man. And we didn't have healthy stuff. My grandmother, Nanny, well, you want, there's no time to eat healthy. And there's not going to be any Brussels sprouts. There's not going to be any cabbage. There wasn't going to be any kale. None of that devil food. I mean, we were going to eat good stuff. And we were together. And you, you just kind of miss that. And you kind of wish we could all be together right now. But here's the thing we are together. We're together, kind of watching and worshiping, and here's the thing. We can still praise and honor God. We can still proclaim Jesus. We can still be together in the spirit of the Holy Spirit. Man, that's just fantastic. Uh, Today is Easter, and today is the last sermon of our series that we've been in, Jesus on the Cross, the seven words of Christ. We've looked at the seven things that are recorded in the Gospels of what Jesus said, and today we come to the final one, the seventh one. We began the series in Luke 23. We're going to end the series in Luke 23, verse 44 through 49, with the reunion, the reunion of the Father with the Son. And so here's what the Scripture says. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly or surely, absolutely, this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return. They were beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. So here's the thing for this last message. What I hope to see, what I hope you get out of it is simply this. The reunion of Jesus and the Father provided the way for all of us to come to God. The reunion. Jesus had been separated from the Father. The abandonment, he is separated. And now he is being reunited, this reunion. It provides the way for us to come to God. And so what I want to do with this message is begin this way. I'm going to talk to you about the seven words of Christ, and they come together. The seven words of Christ just kind of come together. And now, 
Whenever you come to the Gospels, or you come uh, into the New Testament period, but especially the Gospels, the book of Acts, where there's so much narration, there, there's context that you have to consider. And there's always a sense of movement. There's a sense of progression. All four of the Gospels are progressing. They start at some place, either at the beginning of Christ's life, uh, beginning before creation in John's case, or beginning of the ministry in Mark's case, and they move, they progress towards the resurrection. So there's all this sense of movement. And when you come to the cross, within the cross, unit within that cross event there was also this sense of movement and progression if you go back uh, to the Thursday before uh, the crucifixion the day before when you're when you're at Thursday and Jesus is with the, the disciples in the upper room and and Judas leaves to go betray him he, he begins to teach them of what's going to happen he's making movement progressing they go to the garden of Gethsemane Matthew Mark and Luke tell us about this and in the garden there he prays to the father your will be done not my will Lord not my will but your will be done he's he's getting ready and then there's movement as they are leaving the garden Judas comes with the palace guards, the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And so the progression is being made. They go from there to a series of trials. There's two huge acts of trials with different scenes. The, the first act of trial, the one with the Jews, has three movements in it. And in these movements, they're trying to find something on Jesus and they can't. They know they want to kill him. They know they want to put him to death. Uh, and, and they can't find anything. The people they have coming in, you know, to, to bring these false testimonies are going nowhere. And, and so they just ask Jesus, are you the son of man? And Jesus, in essence, to get the thing moving, says, I am. I am the son of God. He says, are you the son of God? He says, I am. I am the son of God. And they accuse him of blasphemy. Now they can find a way to put him to death. And then it goes to the Roman part of the trial. And there's these three movements there. And he goes to Pilate, and then Herod, and, and then Pilate again. And, and they keep, you know, Pilate keeps trying to find a reason to crucify him, but he's none. He's just not guilty. He's not guilty. He's innocent of everything. He, he goes to the Jews, Pilate does, and says, why don't I release him to you? You can say that he's guilty, but I release one prisoner every year. Will that satisfy you? And they say, no, we want him dead. And they says, well, how about if I just beat him? I'll whip him. Will that be enough? And he does whip him. But no, they want him dead. And so there's this movement of going forward, having to get him to the cross. And finally, when Jesus does come to the cross, there again, we, we see these seven sayings kind of come together and meeting. And, and the movement is there as, as the beginning of the cross event. And, and the cross covers about six hours, about nine in the morning to about three in the afternoon. And these seven recorded sayings that Jesus gave us, three of them occur right around nine and another four occur right around three o'clock. And so the first thing he says in, in Luke 23, as they're hammering the nails into his wrist, into his body, uh, Jesus, who was going to die on the cross to provide forgiveness for all of us at that moment concerning the people who were actually putting them to death, the ones who were actually there at the crucifixion, he says, Father, forgive them. You see the forgiveness. Why Jesus came? To provide the forgiveness. And then a few verses later, we see Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. There are a couple of thieves with him. They're robbers. They're insurrectionists. They're hardened criminals. And, and one of them has faith. And it's, I've shared this before. This is like the worst faith ever. In fact, when I preached this message, I just talked about his faith being the bare minimum. What's the minimum amount of faith you can have? What's the least amount of faith? This is it. I mean, he had just enough faith. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, you'll today be with me in paradise. He saves them. The salvation that is there. 
And then in John 19, we move and we see Jesus talking uh, to his mother who was there. And Jesus, it's time for him now to focus all his attention away from his family, from his mom, and and to what he's come for. And here Jesus is really kind of breaking from his family for good. And John, the beloved disciple, is there. And so he looks at his mother with absolute love and says, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, he says, Behold your mother. And in love, he gives his mother over to the care of John. And in that part there at the nine o'clock hour, those three statements, those three messages, you see the essence of the Christian faith. Because of the unbelievable love of God, the unbelievable love of Jesus, we have forgiveness and salvation made available to us. He comes in to the three o'clock hour. And at this time, he, he gives the four statements. And Matthew and Mark record him as saying, uh, my Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. And we saw the abandonment, God abandoning Jesus. There's that sense of separation between Jesus and the Father. And he is at that moment no longer experiencing the presence of God in love and fellowship. He is experiencing instead the judgment of God that comes upon sin. And in doing so, Jesus, who was sinless, who did not deserve to pay for any sin, because he himself never sinned, he experiences an eternity's worth of judgment so that you and I might experience the love and forgiveness and salvation that is ours. And then he says, you know, and we see in John 19, I am thirsty. And and we saw in that message on the suffering uh, that Jesus took all of that suffering and everything that was told in, in the Old Testament, what he calls the scriptures, all the scripture was fulfilled right there on the cross. And then last week, also from John 19, we saw Jesus claim in great victory, it is finished. He did everything that was necessary to provide for our salvation. Which brings us to today's saying, which is, Father, into your hands I give my spirit, where Jesus did that and he died. And at that moment, the the cross event was not over. It looked like things had come to an end. It looks like all that Jesus came for, all that Jesus came to bring us, that he worked for, that he served for, was coming to an end at the cross, but that was not the case. What was still left was the glorious resurrection that we celebrate on Easter. And here's the thing that's so important. The resurrection of Jesus not only brings the cross event to a conclusion, but it also provides context, clarity, and celebration. You see, the resurrection completes this whole story. It completes not only the cross event, and it completes the reason the gospels would come to us. The whole gospel message of Christ is completed in the resurrection. But what it does, it provides a sense of context. It, it helps us understand the entirety of the ministry of Jesus, why Jesus came to save us, to seek and to save the lost, he said, to bring us to God. It provides that context. It provides clarity. You look at the statements of Jesus. Without the, without the resurrection, they're, they're going to be hard to understand. There's no clarity, but the resurrection brings light on these statements. And so in light of the resurrection, we we can understand all that's going on, that salvation is coming to us. And of course, it brings celebration because Easter is all about celebrating the resurrection of Christ. This last statement of Jesus closes out the actual time on the cross. And so what he says here is so important. And what I want us to see is, as Luke writes, there are kind of three perspectives to look at. And the first perspective that we see is, is God's perspective. Now, whenever you talk about things coming from God's perspective, understand that's always difficult to do because we really can't talk about the perspective of God. And yet, we can at least understand something. And so in, in 
for lack of a better term, God's perspective, there, there are two kind of symbolic gestures, two things mentioned that have some uh, uh, symbolic and, and representative significance. He talks about darkness, and Luke talks about the veil. Now, it, it says that darkness covered the land from about noon to about 3 o'clock. Matthew and Mark say the same thing. What it tells us, it says, is that the sun was hidden, that it was obscure, that, that its light didn't shine forth. Some people think it means there was total darkness, that it was pitch black, but it doesn't really mean that at all. It's just that the sun was hidden. If, if you think about at this time of the year being in spring, especially where I come from, thunderstorms can come rolling in rather quickly. And with thunderstorms, especially in the spring, they can be these heavy, thick clouds. And those heavy, thick clouds can obscure the sun. It's not pitch black, but we know that it's dark. In fact, you may have to turn your lights on to drive or may have to have some lights on to see clearly because of the darkness, the obscuring, the hiding of the sun. Darkness in, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, um, can represent one of three things. It can represent evil, but this doesn't have to do with evil. It can represent ignorance, but this doesn't have to do with ignorance. But it also represents judgment. And hell is described as the place of eternal darkness. And and so what you see here is the judgment of God for the sins of man coming upon Christ. So there was darkness, there was judgment. But also, from God's perspective, there was this thing called the veil, and the veil is torn in two. Uh, The veil was a curtain, and the veil was in the temple of the Jews. The place of Jewish worship was the temple. When Jesus came and fulfilled all that the scriptures uh, said he came to fulfill, the temple was no longer necessary. Jesus was the true temple. But in the temple, there was the place called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, it was believed that that was kind of the representative place of where God was. Now, we know God is everywhere, but it symbolized God's presence. And that curtain, that veil, separated God from the people once a year on the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice. Well, when that curtain was torn, and Matthew and Mark tell us the same thing, it, it symbolizes the separation, the breaking apart of that which keeps us from God. No longer was there any obstacle, any curtain between us and God. Jesus had provided access to the Father. So you see, with the coming of judgment, also provided access to God. So there was God's perspective, and then there was the people's perspective. It talks about the centurion, the crowd, and the, and the women, the followers of Christ. We take them kind of in reverse order. There was a group of people there who were the acquaintances of Jesus, the, uh, the women, the ones who were there that knew Jesus. Not all of Jesus' followers were there, but the, the ones who, who were there who knew him, who, who were his followers, it says they were far off. They stood at a distance. All the apostles, all the disciples, but John had fled to go into hiding. They were fearing for their lives. And, and the people that were there, the women are the ones that dominate. You, you can imagine how crushed they must have been. That all they had looked forward to, all they had hoped for, and Jesus as the Messiah now has come really to an end. It was over. And, and so kind of in a shocked state, kind of in disbelief, they, they stood at a difference, distance. Then there was the crowd, just the average people that were there. Probably not the Jewish leaders, but, but just the average one in the middle Jewish folks who were there. And they observed the things that had happened. Maybe they heard all or at least part of the things that Jesus had said. And they experienced the darkness. There was an earthquake that occurred. And as Jesus died, they began, it says, to beat their breasts. And, and the beating of the breasts were, was a sign of grief, a sign of, of guilt, a sign of being overcome with burden. Maybe they came to realize that as Jesus died... Uh, their hope also had, had gone away and overcome with the guilt, overcome with the burden of having missed out 
on the Messiah. But there was another person who was there, and that was the centurion. Uh, the centurion was a Gentile, a pagan. Um, centurions were in charge of about 100 soldiers. Interesting enough in the New Testament, when you see centurions, they're always talked about in a positive way. Uh, Matthew and, and Mark tell us that he looked upon the events and said, surely this was the Son of God. Luke tells us that he began to praise God. The word for praise is the word to glorify. In other words, he began and kept on glorifying God. This is a pagan. This is, this is a guy who, who worshipped either his ancestors or some Roman god or whatever. And now all of a sudden, he's praising the one true God and said, this man, that is Jesus, is, is innocent. He is righteous. He is just. He didn't deserve any of this. This is a, a statement of faith. Now, some may question whether the, the Roman centurion had true saving faith. I mean, you don't know, but this is the interesting thing about the way Luke writes. Earlier on, he talked about a thief who was hanging on the cross, who was dying, who couldn't do anything for his salvation. He couldn't be good enough. He couldn't earn it. He couldn't do anything once he became a Christian. All he could do was die. He had the worst faith ever. But Jesus said, you're with me in paradise today. Luke portrays his faith. And now you come to a Roman, a pagan, who knew nothing about the Jewish way, who knew nothing about the way to God, but saw all that occurred. You see him making a statement of faith. You see, at the cross, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter who you are. You can come to Jesus. But there's a third perspective, and this is the one that really matters, and it is the perspective of Jesus. Jesus' perspective, and he, he cries out, you know, Father, into your hands I, I commit or give my spirit. He is, in um, essence, he is quoting one of the Psalms. Several times when Jesus makes a statement on the cross, he is referencing one of the Psalms. Um, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's talking from Psalm 22. I thirst is talking from Psalm 69. And here he's talking from Psalm chapter 31. It is a psalm of faith, a psalm of praise, a psalm of David's of commitment. In Psalm chapter 31, verse, 35, verse 5, it says, Into your spirit, into your hands I give my spirit. Verse 6 would say, God, I trust you. Oh, Lord, I trust you. Verse 14 says, But Lord, I trust you. It's this psalm of faith. And so here, in referencing Psalm 31, Jesus is expressing his absolute confidence in the God who has abandoned him. He's talking about his faith. And so he, he cried out with a loud voice. He had done the same thing earlier when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he cries out in a loud voice, Father. He, he adds this word Father to what was seen in Psalm 31.5. There's that closeness, that personal connection to God. Earlier, when he said, you have forsaken me, he calls him God. There's that transcendence. There's that distance. God has separated himself from Jesus. So the distance is there. But now he calls him Father, and, and that distance has been shrunk, and there's that sense of imminence, that closeness, that intimacy, that God who, is the, God who is far away is also the God who is near to us. And he says, Father, into your hands. Uh, that word into is a, is a preposition. Prepositions can be really important. It speaks of, of movement. Uh, some of you right now, or most of you, when you're watching, you're probably somewhere near a door, depending if you're in the house or outside, there's a door nearby. If you were to walk through that door, you would go into someplace, into a room, uh, into the house. Maybe you would go uh, into your kitchen, wherever you might go. You would go into a place. There'd be movement from out of into, and that's what it signifies. He was outside of the hands of the Father in abandonment. Now he's coming into that closeness to hands of the Father, and he says, I commit I give to you my spirit. The word commit means to lay down. It is to place in front of someone. Uh, it could be used of uh, someone making a deposit, giving a sum of money into someone's hands and saying, I commit this to you. 
uh, when a father uh, walks his daughter down the aisle to give her away in marriage. In essence, he is committing, he is entrusting, he is saying, I give my daughter to you. A smart father will do that with the understanding to the young husband that there is a shotgun uh, waiting for him if he ever messes that commitment up. And so that's, that's an added incentive. Uh, maybe not where you come from, but where I come from, there's always a weapon of some sort involved in giving the daughter away. And so there's a sense of, of just placing before, the placing the, the commitment to someone. And he says, I commit my spirit, who I am, all of me. I, I trust everything to you. And all of that was for us. Here's the thing. Having been abandoned by the Father, Jesus now gives his life into the hands of the Father. He is, in essence, get this, reunited. This provides a way for all of us to come to the Father. You and I are separated from God by our sins. There's no reuniting us. There's just uniting us. Jesus was with the Father for all eternity. Our sin brought separation. Now he has come and been reunited. By Jesus being reunited, we can be united with the Father. And it's a beautiful thing. And and, and here's the deal. Jesus didn't just die. It says he breathed his last. The idea is that he determined it was time to go. He was through. No one took his life. We say they killed Jesus, and it's correct, and it's true, and they did. And he even makes that comment. But in essence, what happened is he he breathed his last. In, In Matthew, it says he yielded up his spirit. Um, and John, it says, he, gave, um, he yielded up his life. And John said he gave it up. And here, both in Luke and in Mark, it says he just breathed. He, just, he stopped. He gave everything to us. Nothing was taken from him. His was the giving of himself for us. And so you see these seven statements just kind of coming together. And when these seven statements come together at the cross, and then you add the resurrection, then you have this beautiful understanding of what it means for Jesus to die for us. The seven statements of Jesus just kind of come together. And so I'd like to just kind of bring this series to a close and talk about Jesus on the cross, what it means. For seven weeks, I've been preaching about Jesus on the cross. Each message is about 30 minutes long, so there's three and a half hours of stuff. And I just kind of want to bring it down and really just kind of summarize it and understand the insignificance. You have the first thing Jesus says, the first three things he says. Those three, the, the forgiveness, the salvation, the love, that is the picture of what faith is. That's the picture of Christianity. I mean, Christianity is based on this unbelievable love that God has for us, this love that is seen in Jesus dying for us. And in this love, he provides the opportunity of forgiveness for us so that we can have salvation. The forgiveness, the salvation, the love. Then you come to the next four statements of Jesus and you see the abandonment and the surrender and the victory and now the reunion, the, 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 the abandonment of God visiting Jesus, not in fellowship and love, the separation, but the judgment, the, the surrendering of himself to accomplish all that God wants, the, the victory that is ours. And then we have this beautiful picture of just Jesus being reunited so that you and I could have Unity and all of this is is cemented. It's it's all brought together at the resurrection. The resurrection makes it all real. Like I said, it gives us the context we need. And what we do on Easter is celebrate resurrection. In fact, here's the thing. Easter, this day that we enjoy, exists because of the resurrection. The resurrection occurred because of the cross. And the cross was where Jesus gave his life. For ours. Think about it. 
The cross was where Jesus gave his life for us. And that allowed the resurrection to occur. And that allows the celebration that we have. You see, fundamental to to who we are is the recognition that only Jesus can bring salvation. He is is the only one. Um, Jesus made this statement uh, before he actually went off to go to the cross. He was teaching the disciples in the upper room. And uh, as he was teaching them, uh, just hours before he would go to the cross, he made a statement that I think is as important as anything today for us that he ever said. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. In, in the Greek, it literally means I and I alone and the way. I and I alone and the truth. And I and I alone and the life. No one can by any means ever come to the Father but through me. And Jesus is just making it clear. There's no way to God through me. Nothing. No other religion works. I know people like to say, well, you know, all these other religions and, you know, people are sincere and they mean it. And there's got to be more than one way to God, one way to God. But all these religions are made up by people. They're man-made. We create them. Not God. God didn't create them. People did. And here's the thing. None of them have anything like Jesus. Oh, they have leaders, they have teachers, they may have people who died, but they don't have God in the flesh coming and living among us and then freely of his own will giving his life for us to die in our place and on our behalf. He died in our place, he died on our behalf, he gave himself for us. None of them have that and none of them have the resurrection. It doesn't exist there. And so when Jesus says, I'm it, you either believe it or you don't. You cannot, you cannot truly claim Christianity and believe that there's any other way to God but through Jesus. No religion. It's not your good works. You can't be good enough. You're so full of sin. I'm so full of sin. We never will be good enough. And he isn't just going to save everybody at the end. I mean, when Jesus hung on that cross... One thief, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But the other thief, he said nothing. He gave him no hope because he had no faith. Jesus died for us and gave himself for us. And the thing about it is he knew it was going to happen. In um, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, Mark chapter 10, verse 31, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to this, to the cross. And he's got people with him, but he's got the 12, and he takes the 12 aside. And and he says to the 12, and and this is so cool, he says, the Son of Man, that's him. That's how Jesus refers to himself. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. (laughs) Judas, you're going to do that. You're going to betray, betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, the Jewish leaders. And they're going to condemn him to death, which is what they did. And they're going to give him over to the Gentiles, the Romans. And the Romans are going to spit on him, mock him, and scourge him, which is what they did. And oh, by the way, then they're going to kill him. Now all this, Jesus, before it happened, said all this is going to happen. But then he says something else. And then on the third day, he will rise again. I mean, Jesus flat calls the shot. He predicts all of this. He talks about how he's going to die, that he's going to die, and that he's going to be raised back to life. He said all that. Then he went out and did it. Andy Stanley, who's the pastor of North Point Community Church in the Alpharetta, Atlanta area, he likes to put it this way. I've heard him say it several times. If a man can predict his own death and how he's going to die and predict his resurrection and then pull it off, I would believe anything that man had to say. 
And that about sums it up. Why wouldn't you believe anything Jesus had to say? And this is what he says. I am the only way to the Father. He is the only way to the Father because of the cross and the resurrection. So I'm going to take this whole sermon series, and I just want to summarize it. I'm going to boil it down to one simple statement. On the cross, Jesus gave his life for ours so that we could give our life to him. On the cross, Jesus took his life and he gave it for ours so that we could take our life and give it to him. He died for you. And all he asks in return is for you to give your life to him, to trust him, to confess your sinfulness when you have sinned, and to take your life and give your life to Jesus. And in doing this, this is what happens. You do this because of the unbelievable love that God has for you, the unbelievable love that Christ has for you. And in doing this, you experience the forgiveness of Christ. You experience the salvation of Christ. It's yours. And all it requires from you is faith to trust him. It's not your good works. You can't do enough good works. It's not your religion. It's not going to work. It's none of the things you do as a follower of Christ. It's not that. It's simply the faith you give him. And he will save you. So I want to ask you on this Easter Sunday, very simply, have you ever trusted Christ to be your Savior? And if you haven't, why haven't you? And why don't you? Why don't you give your life to Jesus right now as I speak to you? Just give your life to Jesus. Trust him to save you. You can do it. It may seem odd. It doesn't take much. It's not something magical. It's not complicated. Just say, Jesus, you died for me. You took all my sins. God raised you back to life. And I'm going to ask you to forgive me for my sinfulness. And I'm going to trust my life. I'm going to commit my life totally to you. And here it is. I give it to you. Maybe you'd like to talk to somebody, one of the pastors, and you can't because you're there and we're here, but actually we've provided a way. In just a moment, Brian and the band are going to sing, and when they sing, there's going to be a phone number pop up. And if you take that phone number, and that phone number, you can text RESPOND. And if you text RESPOND to that phone number, it's going to go to Joe Andrews, our campus pastor. And Joe's going to be there, and he's going to get your response, and then as soon as the service is over, either Joe or one of the other pastors will contact you and talk to you about what you need to do. Now, if you don't want to do that right now, you want to wait, or you want to talk to us later, go to our website. And on our website, fbclascruces.com, there's a place that says contact. Contact us. Just put your name, website, I mean, your name, your phone number, email address. There's a little message. Tell us what you want. Do you want us to email you, call you, what's going on? But here's the thing. You need to come to Jesus. He gave everything for you. And that's what Easter is all about. Easter is about you coming to Christ because not only did he die, he came back to life. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So, Father, it's Easter. What a time to celebrate. But we can only celebrate that which is ours, that which we've experienced. We can only celebrate if truly we have trusted Jesus to be our Savior. So I pray in the name of Christ, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that everyone who is listening, who is watching, who is not a follower of Jesus would today, at this very moment, give their life to Christ, trust him to save them. Father, let them experience what it means to know that Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.